to the bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. We're running a listener survey to help us improve the show. The link's in the show notes. Fill it in and you're in with a chance of winning a t-shirt. Why are Britain's railways such a mess? Why is it so hard to buy a ticket, to know when you can use that ticket, to know how to claim when the train is late? With me to answer those questions is Tom Haynes-Duran, a research fellow in transport systems at the University of Leeds. He's the author of Derailed, How to Fix Britain's Broken Railways. Welcome to the bunker, Tom. Hello, thanks for having me. Can I tell you about a train journey that I wanted to make last weekend? Yeah. I promise not to go on for too long. <laughs> <laughs> I got to Victoria Station and I found that the trains to the place I wanted to go had mostly been cancelled due to a shortage of train drivers. So I had to entirely abandon my journey and then I had to queue for half an hour to get the money back from a ticket that I had stupidly just bought. What is going on at the moment? Because Avanti, West Coast in particular, are having big difficulties in running their timetable at all and I think have just slashed the number of their services to the north of England. What is causing this? I live in Manchester myself, so I'm, I'm not really happy about this. The main cause at the moment seems to be a shortage of tra- train drivers. The government and the train operating company seem to be blaming unofficial strike action by the train drivers union, which is called ASLEF. Now, that seems fairly unlikely, um, but essentially the rostering of train drivers relies on a lot of overtime. So if fewer than normal train drivers decide to work overtime, then they have a shortage. And that goes back to um, the problem of just a lack of train drivers in general. And essentially, the people who employ the train drivers, they're called the train operating companies, you mentioned Avanti, they bid for government contracts called franchises to run the services. Um, And they essentially have to promise the most amount of cuts to the costs of the spending on the railways. And the only way they can do that, because they don't own anything, they don't own the tracks, they don't own the trains, is to say that we're going to reduce the staffing costs. And that's actually behind a lot of the problems we're seeing on the railways, whether it's the shortage of drivers or the strikes. So are they hoping that essentially other companies will train up the drivers and then they can poach the drivers off those companies and save the cost of training them themselves? Yeah, so it makes more sense in terms of your short-term profits, and the whole system is based on short-term profits. But the overall effect is train drivers moving from one company to another, usually getting pay rises as they go, and and a shortage. So you're not getting the uh, numbers of people coming through the training systems uh, to cater for the demand for drivers. So the strikes now are ramping up. We have, I think, two or three coming up and the almost certain prospect of more because there doesn't seem to be any movement in the negotiations. Do you think there is going to be an almighty standoff in the autumn when the new PM comes to power and will be expected to do something about this and to somehow intervene in the dispute? Yeah, it's a, it's a strange situation we're in because really it's the government that decides what happens with the strikes. Technically, the workers who have been on strike that work for the train operating companies, the ones that run the franchises. But those companies are entirely reliant on the amount of public subsidy they get from the government. So if they're, if they're going to meet some of the demands of the rail workers, then they're going to have to get more subsidy. And the problem that the rail workers and their unions have at the moment is that there doesn't seem to be much leadership in government. 
it costs a lot of money for the government to put these strikes on, if you like. Um, so they have to compensate the train operating companies for the loss of income they face. Tens of millions of pounds a day, by my reckoning. So you have to get agreement from the Treasury that they want to spend public money, which is in, we were told, in short supply, essentially on, on breaking the strike. Now, who, who makes that decision? How much of a priority is it for the government to do that? And one of the things that's been happening over the past few weeks, if you speak to rail workers who've been on strike, is a lot of them are a bit confused as to why there's been so few strike days. We've only had, I think, three so far since the strikes were announced in, early in the summer. That, that won't be enough pressure on the government. And it's probably because they can't win the strike as long as we don't know who the prime minister is and, and, how, and what they want to do. So they've got no one to negotiate with at the moment. Um, so we're seeing strikes announced. There's, there's some later this month, uh, 18th and 20th of August. And they're really just sort of tokenistic strikes, keeping the momentum going of, of the campaign, if you like, for the maintenance of terms and conditions and, and no compulsory redundancies. Once that prime minister is in place and it becomes clearer what the government actually wants to do, then we could well see a lot more strike action called. Yeah, Not a great prospect. However, there is a plan for certainly shaking up Britain's railways. It's called the Williams Shapps Rail Plan, and it proposes creating a new entity called Great British Railways. Can you tell us what that plan would do and how it would change what is happening at the moment? William Shapps' plan is, is something that's sort of been kicking around for quite a long time, and, and people forget that it was actually originally called the Williams Review, and that the original purpose of that review was to try and work out what had gone wrong about three or four years ago when there was a major disruption uh, when they tried to introduce a new timetable on, on large parts of the network. But when it did emerge, it, it was renamed um, the William Shapps Plan for Rail. The name itself suggests that actually it had gone from an independent inquiry into what the railways had got wrong, what needed to change, to a government-sponsored report about what they wanted to do. And actually, a lot of the original questions that people were looking for answers for in, in that process were never really answered. So Great British Railways is a sort of overall headline plan with a lot of the details not really out yet. But essentially... They've indicated they want to do something a bit different. So when the railways were privatised, the, the idea was that you'd have these private companies running services and the private companies would use their entrepreneurial flair to improve services. That's not really worked out as, as it was planned. But the major difference now would be that instead of those private companies taking the fare money, it would be taken by directly by the government. So you'd still have private companies running services, but they'd be doing it it's more like traditional outsourced contractors. However, franchising has been broken for a long time and, and a lot of the franchises are actually run by, by state company now. And there's an argument to say that if, if they're actually cutting the amount of money that's going into the railways, and at the moment a lot of the companies aren't actually run by the private sector, this could be seen as a way to not only cut services, but also to reintroduce the private sector into the railways when actually a lot of the um, services are run by the government now. 
So to be clear, this isn't going to do anything to address the problem of the driver shortages, because it will still be up to the uh, train operating companies to handle all that, and the government won't have any control over it. Yeah, uh, I, I suspect it, it won't. Would it be possible for the government to directly employ train drivers and then put them on secondments to the, the train operating companies? Possibly. I mean, the, the important thing to note about all of this is just that we haven't seen any plan, so I can only speculate. But the idea with the new system, which is called concessions rather than franchises, is the traditional outsourcing, which is that private companies are best placed to bear down on wage costs. They're less politically accountable uh, to the electorate. They have more experience and more incentives to do it through contracting. So if, if that's going to be the case with this drivers are one of the areas of expenditure that they'll look to cut so i can't see how it's going to lead to investment in training the big sell with this was that it was going to simplify ticketing which so many people find including myself find incredibly confusing would it do that at least um it's important to know why ticketing is so complex when the railways were privatized they there were a limited amount of tickets that you could get for a particular journey, you know, season tickets and whether you wanted to travel peak or off peak. But one of the selling points of the railways is that we're going to introduce all kinds of new tickets. And of course, one of the big losses for passengers was you couldn't just use any train. You had to think, is, is this a virgin train or is this a cross-country train? Am I on the right train? The big advance, if you like, since privatisation happened was this idea that most tickets would be sold online and in advance, taking the model from the airlines where they said, you know, if if there's spare capacity on this train, then we can give you really cheap tickets. And it's those really cheap tickets that the rail companies like to promote. But actually, advance fares only account for about 5% of ticket sales. But the result of all of this is that you now have on on some journeys potentially hundreds of different types of tickets you can get with all kinds of different types of restrictions. Uh, Alongside that, you've had a big increase in policing of rail tickets. And the other part of the complication was that not all fares were going to be regulated when they privatise the railway. So around 50% of fares are, are regulated by the government. So it's the government that decide how much each year the fares are going to increase or decrease. And, and the traditional way they've done that is against the retail price index measure of inflation. And of course, that's a measure of inflation that's barely used anymore, quite considerably higher uh, than the consumer price index. And what it means is that every January you get this situation where the government says um, we're going to freeze rail fares. And what, what they mean is they're going to increase rail fares by the retail price index. The net result of, of all of this has been around a, a real terms 40% increase in fares since privatisation. But those fares have increased 50% for unregulated fares and only 30% for regulated fares. So the government is has deliberately shifted a lot of the costs of running the railways onto passengers. Presumably, we can expect a big rise unless something changes in this practice in January because inflation by then is forecast to be more than 13% in the consumer prices index alone. So that is something that presumably the government will have to grapple with on top of everything else. 
Yeah, it seems it seems extraordinary, doesn't it, that they would uh, put up fares by thirteen percent after a year of absolute chaos uh, on the railways, trains being cut left, right, and centre. Nobody really knowing what's going on. Um, I mean, I suspect it, that sort of level of increase is probably politically untenable. But we'll have to see. It, it will depend on what happens in terms of politics. At the moment, I feel powerless to do anything about the state of the railways. I feel as a passenger that I have absolutely no voice. And in fact, the only voice I occasionally have is interacting with a, uh, it almost feels like a bot belonging to a train operating company on Twitter, who will always be very polite to me, or nearly always, but no, that is that is not a wholly satisfactory experience. Is there anything passengers can actually do at this at this time? Obviously, the, com- the country has some enormous problems at the moment, and rail is just one of them. But what can we do? I guess it's important to say that the the whole point of privatisation was that you, you don't have to do anything. Um, you create markets, you involve the private sector the political responsibility for the railways taken off the government's shoulders and you interact as a not as a passenger but as a customer as you would with any other business now clearly that hasn't worked out as as the theory suggested um so so what's left um obviously there's elections and there's um ways to change things in terms of political parties coming up with different solutions there hasn't really been much new thinking on the railways, unfortunately. Um, and, and passengers in a very difficult place. They don't have any way of um, sort of appealing to some body which can stand up for their rights. There's not really a body that exists like that. On, on the other hand, it's arguable that a lot of the interests of passengers are very similar to the interests of railway workers. But if the government is intent on on closing all the ticket offices in Britain, seems to have cut huge amounts of services in the past few months without any promise that they will come back. And as we discussed before, may well put up fares even more. So there's an argument that um, it's in the passengers' interest, actually, to support the strikes. On the other hand, um, are there things that the railway unions could do that could support passengers more? There have been a number of movements which have taken more drastic action. And one that I like to highlight is the group called the South Yorkshire Freedom Riders. And and back in the mid-2010s, in South Yorkshire, they had a a policy where older and disabled people had free rail travel off-peak. And that was taken away partly as a result of um, the austerity measures that were going through at the time. And they got together with a few hundred people and said, we're going to get the train from Barnsley Station and we're going to travel for free, like just like we did last week. And actually, they, they won back free travel for disabled people. So it's possible that rail passengers themselves can, can go on strike too. They can refuse to pay fares. Now, in doing so, they are uh, potentially breaking the law. Uh, but they're not breaking the law, interestingly, if um, there are railway workers who allow them to travel for free. And that's what happened in South Yorkshire. So you can start to see how there might be some ways of working together between passengers and railway workers, which are militant, but can 
maybe move the political situation on in ways that waiting for the next election or lobbying your MP, um, which people have been doing for for years uh, and not really getting anywhere, um, can achieve. You've got some quite radical proposals in your book of how we could practically improve the state of the railways, things like abolishing first class travel, for example. Just tell us briefly about those and what a difference they would they might make. Well, we've got a real problem uh, in terms of transport in this country. The elephant in the room is, is, of course, climate change. And we also need to use the railway lines that we have more efficiently. Now, one of the few good things that's come out of the COVID crisis is this idea that we can now work from home and that that, that should be supported. That working from home, um, the amount of people travelling at peak time, the latest statistics is 50% of what it was before the pandemic. Can that extra capacity be used for, for people who are currently driving uh, and allow them to travel by train now that we have some extra capacity? And you mentioned first class. There are trains going round every day into our city centres uh, with about a quarter of the carriages empty. And yet those carriages could be used to be carrying people or they could be used for other purposes. Uh, in in uh, European railways, it's not uncommon to see children's play areas, for example, much more provision for bike storage on, on trains. And we could go back to a situation where there was actually parcels carried by train, which are currently being driven around by Ford Transit vans and the like. We could actually use the spare capacity on our trains instead of for the odd rich person uh, who wants to travel on a bit more of comfort to actually use more efficiently the space and the energy that's being used to move that train around. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. That's been fascinating. Really appreciate it. Derailed How to Fix Britain's Broken Railways is published by Manchester University Press and it answers very well the question that rail passengers ask ourselves every day. Why is this network run in such a crazy way? Thanks for listening to The Bunker and don't forget you can back us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. We're running a listener survey to help us improve the show. The link's in the show notes. Fill it in and you're in with a chance of winning a t-shirt. I'm Ross Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. With audio production from me, Robin Lieber. The producers are Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sofronevich, and assistant producer is Kasia Tomasiewicz. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, our theme tune is from Kenny Dickinson, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Listener.